Hello and welcome to Times Told Tales. Today we are joined by the wonderful Dr John Piprani from the University of Manchester, who's very kindly come to talk to us about Kimberley points. So John, what, what are Kimberley points then? Hi Laura, hi Jordan. Um, Kimberley points are glass and ceramic um, spearheads from Northern Australia, so produced by Aboriginal Australians um, who come from the Kimberley region. So Kimberley points, um, they're, they're essentially a stone tool technology. So Kimberley points, I think have been made for about 1,500 years from stone. But when European, um, when Europeans arrived in Australia, um, they brought with them sort of settler materials like glass bottles and um, another another thing was uh, sheep fencing wire. And Aboriginals started to use things like glass and ceramic um, and tools like uh, fencing wire to produce these points. So they shifted from making stone tools to making glass and ceramic tools. Um, so, but there's quite an interesting context to it in the Aboriginal Australians were hunter-gatherers. So they, they earned their living, if you like, by moving around the landscape. But once European um, settlers arrived, they started to partition the landscape for sheep farming. And obviously, once you start partitioning up the landscape, a hunt, a mobile lifestyle becomes less and less practical because certain areas of resources that you rely on are no longer accessible. So these these Kimberley points emerge at a time where actually hunting seems to be becoming less and less important or less and less practical. However, the fact that these points are made from glass and ceramic and they look amazing, it's a shame we can't look at one, but if anybody wants to Google one, that's the, the, the actual um, appearance of them seems to have given them a new lease of life as some kind of trading commodity between Aboriginal Australians and uh, European settlers. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the question was. It was to introduce them, wasn't it? That's, that's my basic yeah. introduction. So I mean, it's quite interesting that they are, you know, functional things that we would think of for hunting, but actually if they're functional things as commodities rather than for survival, you know, it's interesting that they are more, not quite jewellery, but almost like symbolic rather than actually practical. I think that's quite an interesting point that we don't necessarily think of when it comes to up sharp, pointy, dangerous looking things. Well, there's, um, there's a couple, there's a debate over them, like most things in academia, it's not clear cut. But someone called Rodney Harrison, he wrote um, a really interesting paper. Um, and I think I think the paper's called Art Kimberley Points, Artifacts of Colonial Desire. Um, and he, he refers to an art historian called, I think it's Alfred Gell. It might be Alfred Gell, I'm not sure. Um, and Alfred Gell or Gell has got this concept of a technology of enchantment. So the fact that they're so complex to make and the fact that they look so amazing 
gives them a quality that makes them desirable. But mm. the reason they're desirable is quite complex. It's not simple. And um, I listened to your discussion with Nick about um, crystal, rock crystal. And in many ways, it's that same argument could be applied to the rock crystal um, oh, in the way he was discussing it, that it, um, it embodies characteristics that are, are so complex that people are enchanted by them. So, so uh, Rodney Harrison's argument is that actually Kimberley points, even though they've got like this 1,500 year prehistory of um, being made on stone, once they started to use new materials, obviously bottles are of a certain form, they allow them to make bigger points, translucent and transparent points, and of different colours. They, His argument is they're not the same thing, really. They're, they're exploiting the qualities of the new material to create new things, and these new things have a different role within mm. society. There's another... Um, there's another researcher called Kim Ackerman who disagrees with that. He he suggests that really complex stone points were made up to 1,500 years ago. So they've always had this important role. Um, and it's not just because not just because they start to be made out of things like glass that they become significant. Okay, so it's it's quite interesting how the the material obviously plays quite a big role. I mean, as someone who has worked with stone and glass yourself you know it's, it's quite a different experience yeah. working with um stone and glass i guess, like just as a quick question do you um it was like oh my god i've just forgotten like i literally had the question <laughs> i've just forgotten it i was going to ask um do you think that maybe there's an idea of sort of ease that comes with maybe making the glass points so the idea that if they're not necessarily needed for hunting anymore if they are for more show purposes maybe it's um sort of a, an easy way of making them and would you know would it have to be a whole new learning process that would come along with it um so the learning process i think glass is, is definitely easier to to work than stone in my experience however um the amazing thing is the Aboriginals recognised um, broken glass had the same fracture uh, mechanics as stone and were then able to start experimenting with it. I think it's too simplistic to suggest that a piece of broken glass looks like a, um, a flake of stone. Mm. It does, and you can see that link. But when, when I looked into the ethnography because one of the great there's there's another aspect to this discussion that the reason i became interested in them was because i wanted to learn how to nap and i'd, I'd been doing that for about 10 years unsuccessfully because access to stone in manchester is really difficult mm. and you get some you use it and then you've got a long wait till you get the next lot so in 2016, I had the space to devote myself to learning, and but I had to think about materials, and then I became interested in these points. But what I was going to say, when I started looking into the ethnography, they were doing amazing things with bottles. So they'd take a beer bottle, and in the 
late 1800s, glass was thicker. So it's not like the glass bottles we get. It's mm. it's much thicker and it's actually easier to work because there's more internal cohesiveness to the material. But they would um, get a normal bottle, use a piece of wire to knock the base out, which we're familiar with mm. from our experimental archaeology sessions. But then they'd get a, a pebble and they'd tap along the length of the bottle and they'd rotate it 25%, so a quarter, and do the same again. And they'd, they'd quarter the bottle by creating these little micro-fractures along the bottle until they'd created enough for it to split. And then they'd have four blanks to make four spear points. And um, there's another example where they use um, heat to um, remove parts of the bottle. So they would, they'd got a really amazing understanding of materials, even though it wasn't a material that they'd produced. It, it was a material they'd encountered. Well, they developed a whole technology around manipulating it that was alien to the Europeans who were throwing these bottles away. So, so what I'm driving at is there was a lot of complexity around the process of adapting to bottles. Mm. So from an um, archaeological perspective, we can't just say this is how they make spearheads out of bottles, therefore that's how they made them out of stone. There, oh, okay. there was a big transition that went on. So a lot of the processes are the same. Mm. But to facilitate that, a lot of intermediate processes had to be developed. Okay, so it, it would have been quite a, a, a learning curve then to sort of have to re rethink how they approach it. I mean, I, I've, I've only ever worked with glass, but I can imagine it's you know, completely different to have to go from, to go from stone to glass, I think would be quite different because it's, although it is, you know, thicker at the time that we're talking about, it still is more fragile and, you know, it's very prone to, to flaking a lot and it's quite a, a, a tricky thing to work with. And, you know, once a bit's gone, that's it, it's gone, it's not coming back. Um, I guess my question is, you mentioned that you started looking at them in 2016. What sort of was your, what's been your interaction with, with Kimberley Point and sort of how have you come to research them? Um, main, mainly that thing that I wanted to learn how to um, flint nap. Um, I'd done a PhD based on stone tools, but I still, after all that time, couldn't really make tools myself. And Kimberley points, they made out of a material that I had access to in Manchester, so glass. Um, they have been recorded ethnographically, so there was a method. I could research a method of how to do it. Um, so that was a really attractive thing, having photographs and texts explaining what to do, as well as a material to work with. And the third thing was that because they had this enchantment aspect to them, most large museums have collections of them. And Manchester Museum's got, I think, about 10. So I was able to go into the museum and have a look at the actual artifacts. And, you know, as a someone who understands lithics, understand the actual objects, then I could go away and practice and start to understand those processes um, through doing them myself. So not just reading about them and understanding them, but 
engaging with the material and, and, and gaining my own understanding. And also because um, I, found, I also found a tip in Manchester where there's a lot of um, old bottles eroding out of animal burrows and under um, upturned trees. So I had period material as well. Um, so all those factors, I added all those factors together as a way of helping me learn how to how to flint that really, or how to pressure flake really. Okay, so Suppose, then... oh, Sorry, I was going to ask a question. Um, so you were saying about... Um, so I've forgotten my question now, look. <laughs> <laughs> God, we're terrible today. Um, no? <laughs> I, I guess my um, my um, uh, quick question was then that um, obviously you've you've been able to experience them. Do you think there's maybe a what sort of difference comes from actually being able to see them? I say touch them, you know, sort of observe them rather than you know me just looking at them on Google. Is there is is there a difference? Do you think there's a difference? Um, they are incredibly hard to make, um, and. Because they're made out of glass, you can get an impressive result relatively quickly. But one of the things that, um, you know, so at a really subtle level, it's very difficult to maintain width. Um, if you want to thin it, then it's a reductive process. And the more skilled you are, the, the better you are at thinning it without making it really narrow. So that's... Um, that's one thing um, that I observed. But I think, and, and this isn't an exact answer to your question, but I think it's something I learned that as, you know, as archeologists and as I started out, I was really keen on understanding how Aboriginals had done it. The model using that to structure my own learning process. So ultimately I could reproduce their process. But when you think about what they did, this new material, glass arrived. So they adapted to it and they changed the, what they were doing. So they weren't sticking. What I was trying to do was emulate something that they were doing. But what they were doing was adapting to materials and taking the skills they already had and modifying them to make the most of these new materials. So actually they were really adaptive Whereas as an archaeologist trying to learn, I was actually being quite, um, what's, what's the term? I was using it didactically. I was trying to follow it to give, to reproduce, to copy something. Whereas they were busy adapting for things. So the, what I'm driving at is there's two different mindsets going on. Mm. There's sort of the, the perspective of the onlooker and then the perspective of the maker as it were and it's it's a very different very different mindset you know you can go and look at arrowheads but actually if you understand how they're made and sort of I, I think what one thing I found quite interesting especially when it comes to um Kimberly points like this is that almost comparing them to sort of you know we have the Kimberly points but then you have you know more modern contemporary versions so us trying to recreate 
how they recreated and the idea of you know we have all these you know tools and all these various different things that we're doing and you know we're having hours and hours and hours of work just to try and recreate this thing whereas this is this is something that they did you know they were practical maybe you know not albeit for hunting purposes but for you know trade economy that kind of thing there's a very different mindset in needing one and wanting one um which i think is quite a, a powerful idea in that you know can we really understand how we make them if we're not in the same situation yeah one of them um, one of the things that i think is intriguing um is that when when i was reading about them the the way the pressure flakes is with um fencing wire so they were taking the the material that Europeans were doing were bringing to partition the land and they were they were reappropriating it or appropriating it and um it said I can't remember the exact length but say it's something like they were produced using lengths of number eight fencing wire um of between six and twenty centimeters so I had an idea what tool they were using but I didn't know where to get number eight fencing wire from so I, I googled it <laughs> <laughs> and apparently number eight fencing wire is four mil wire but in New Zealand it's um it's a bit like gaffer tape in the UK it's for bodging things together right so, um so it, it's used a lot not just by aboriginals in Australia but it's it's generally seen as a, a useful solution to many different problems so i'd found um, where i could get my glass from from this tip but then I, I was trying to work out where can i get some number eight fencing wire from and i was taking the dog for a walk and i saw this old post and i saw that it had wire attached around it i thought wow so i i got a bit of the wire off and i started bending it so this might seem like a bit too much detail but you've got a post with a circumference and it was attached on at certain points so once i'd released it i could keep bending it okay and it, and it broke off hmm. took it home got my calipers out as <laughs> you all know what calipers are now got my calipers out and it was four mil so i've got my fencing wire but then i measured it and it was i can't remember what it was but the point is that those measurements that were given in the academic text between eight and 20 centimeters are probably related to the diameter of the post and them bending it because they wouldn't have been walking around with uh, wire clippers. Mm. So by that same process, I'm, I can't say this is how Aboriginal Australians obtain their <laughs> fencing wire, but I was able to obtain it in a really interesting way that and the dimensions corresponded with the tools that were used. So I think that that gave me a really exciting insight or potential insight because obviously I can't I can't support it other than the fact that it seems like a logical way that this kind of material would have been acquired by people without loads of tools. Yeah, taking the dog for a walk and just taking some wire from fence. Yeah, that's it's that's... the dog's fault. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I suppose my question, now yep. I've remembered it, um, I'm going to go completely different. Uh, she's talking about all the uh, 
metaphysical stuff about it or mindsets, I'm going to ask, how good is it at hunting? I'm not a hunter, but that's one of no, that's one of the debates in that academic discussion that Rodney Rodney Harrison's really interested in them as commodities, whereas um, Kim Ackerman, who who's a really good napper, and he's he's spent a lot of time explaining to me how to do it. Um, he said he's been out with Aboriginal people who hunt with them. They're they're used in the same way as stone, but because they're more brittle, they tend to break off in the body of the animal and therefore they make more bleeding and therefore they kill the animals, but in a slightly different way to a stone point. So a stone point would, I think generally the hunting logic of arrows and spears is the, the point goes in and the shaft sticks out, the animal runs off the shaft gets clattered around in the undergrowth because the animal goes to the undergrowth to, to escape. And that clattering around means that the arrowhead or the spear point is in the body cutting. So the more it runs away, the more it cuts itself and the more it bleeds. The more it bleeds, the quicker it's gonna die. So glass actually works better um, in that respect but obviously if you miss it's probably going to break so then you've so a stone one probably wouldn't so you've got different slightly different qualities to it but according to kim ackerman it was used in exactly the same way as stone points okay so it, it's more effective as sort of like a like but you get one shot kind of thing like it's it's more temporal but perhaps more effective okay so yeah i mean that's the debate obviously i'm I'm only i'm regurgitating the debate i've read i don't know this from my own experience also do we know if the stone points were exclusively succeeded by glass like once the glass was starting to be used did the stone stop being used or were they contempt with the contemporary yeah, I mean, because um, because of that paper by Kim Ackerman, where he said he's been out with people who are using both stone and glass points, that's his argument for saying that actually these were just another material to make points with. So he's trying to shift the focus away from the idea of transactions. So the answer to your question would be, yeah, it, it appears as though they were both used um, together. Well, there's, there's interesting aspects to the, the social implications as well, because in, a, in an Aboriginal context, materials were really important and stone wasn't just seen as a functional material. The place that it came from was seen to have importance. Um, and so certain individuals had control of stone sources and it was usually older men. So older men, gain their authority over younger men by controlling stone sources. So if a younger man, I don't like pointing to myself as a younger man, because <laughs> I'm not, but if a younger man wanted to obtain some stone, they had to negotiate with the older man. And if the older man was agreeable, they could then go and access some. But once glass arrived, it meant that younger men could get access 
to a material and they could short circuit the traditional route of having to go through the older men. So it also disrupted the Aboriginal social structure and the control mechanisms within that in relation to older men and younger men. Okay, so they're more, it's quite an interesting impact how, I mean, obviously we know from slightly more um, local history that there's there's definitely social structures, especially when it comes to hunting gathering societies and that there is this idea of hierarchy, especially within men who are hunters, you know, you are learning from your elders, you are respecting them, you know, they are the experienced ones. But to then have the ability to actually go, well, hang on a minute, I can do this for myself and you know perhaps the the older generation weren't necessarily as I don't want to say useful but I can't think of any other word because there is this new way they're going to have to learn again how to create glass there obviously is going to be quite a big um, social disruption in that I guess my question that comes out of this is um, how how useful do you think the Kimberley points are as an object for really understanding sort of social hierarchy, especially in sort of Aboriginal culture? Um, that's, that is that Rodney Harrison paper that I can provide a link to. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that spring to mind. Um, within, the, within the social hierarchy, I think, um, I don't know, I'll have to um, follow Peter Little on this and say, I've, I've only read what I've, what I've just uh, talked about. I think um, there's um, another paper that I think Rodney Harrison cites about a prison where Aboriginals were in prison and they were let out once a week to, to go hunting because it reduced the costs of keeping them in prison. And um, when that site was excavated, what they found was that the, the glass Kimberley Point napping scatters were out of sight of the prison. And from that, they've hypothesized that actually the method of production was kept secret from the Europeans because these points were trading commodities with the prison guards. So it's not an Aboriginal um, answer, but it's an answer that it gave Aboriginals some kind of way of gaining or, or some way of having a commodity to work with, with European prison guards mm. that made their lives a bit easier within prisons. Okay, so um, just for my brain clarification, what kind of time, what, what kind of time frame are we talking here in which these are being made? Um, if, if you read Kim Ackerman's stuff, he's he's saying mid-1800s. Rodney Harrison says late-1800s to around about the 1980s. So okay. Kim Ackerman is a European um, heritage, but he was taught by Aboriginals. And he's very, he, you know, he's, he's great. He was really helpful to me and he's very knowledgeable and very skilled. But yeah, it's, it's recent, recent stuff. Because hmm, when we think of sort of, you know, stone and glass tools you sort of think I know this is this is ancient societies kind of thing it's kind of interesting to hear that actually I mean it's not quite my lifetime but it is <laughs> it's not that far away to actually think that they're they're still being used I think because 
quite a lot when we think of like lithics and thing i don't know um you know, you've obviously had more experience in the world of lithics than we have but my brain is very you know sort of britain centric uh, eurocentric yeah, yeah. kind of view to actually think that you know these are still techniques that are being used around the world you know not that long ago it's it's quite it's quite a um humbling view i think i'd have to say to actually think that they're still being practice as such and I mean they are they are beautiful when you look at them especially the glass colored ones they are you can kind of I, I can kind of see why the the Euro um the European guards were, were so interested in trading and they are they're very appealing you know to actually look yeah. at them you know, despite the fact that they are in essence weapons you know, it's, it's quite a, a beautiful thing to look at as well yeah it's um I mean, what's interesting as well is that we see a glass bottle, but what Aboriginals saw was a material for making amazing artifacts. Hmm. I think it's a very interesting sort of way to look at, way to look at things. You know, what might be someone's rubbish can actually be someone's livelihood almost. I mean, it's not, it's not a comparison, but I mean, people who do um, scrap metal collecting, for example, you know, we throw it away and they use it as you know their it's it's their income you know they sell it on and they use it as their money it's not you know we just throw away our bottles or whatever but that could be i mean i'm not going to go start trading arrowheads off the street corner but <laughs> it's quite interesting to think that that's not you know like hundreds and hundreds of years away it is still quite a recent thought yeah i did um from my experience um I did a workshop at a permaculture event. It was a permaculture annual event in Manchester. And so I, I did it as a way of illustrating how, you know, ecologically and politically, our understanding of materials is very constrained. It's objectified. We see a bottle, you know, and we might recycle it. Um, but we don't really understand what glass is be above and beyond. It's um, something that we purchase, have a drink, and then we recycle the glass. So we might, you know, if, if we're into recycling. Whereas these things are amazing. They just show us that our use of resources is so unthought out and Eurocentric. Mm. And it just needs someone from a different culture to see what these resources are and they have a totally different take on them. So I sort of used it as a way of trying to open our eyes up to materials in general, thinking about materials rather than thinking about objects made from materials. It's, um, oh, okay. it's kind of like Tilly's argument of materials over materiality, isn't it? Exactly. It's, I'd, I'd used that paper in a lecture at Chester and it's quite a complicated paper, isn't it? You know, you really have to think. But I think a bottle's a really good illustration that we all know what a bottle is, we all see it, we all know what material it's made from. But then you see a Kimberley point and you just, wow. And and then you find out it's made out of a glass bottle. Mm. You know, it, it just shifts, um, it just shifts our understanding because what Aboriginals were looking at was the materials, not the bottle as such. And so, so then you get this dialogue going on between Europeans who are throwing away bottles and Aboriginals who are seeing this amazing material and producing stuff out of it. Hmm. I wonder then if maybe like, 
See, I, I'd never heard of Kimberly Points before until you mentioned it. And actually, once I started doing some research, there is, um, I mean, my, myself and Jordan have just completed a, a unit on um, sort of thoughts in archaeology and like archaeological thinking. So the whole idea of sort of materiality and the importance of materials is something that is now drilled into our brains. <laughs> um, but for people that don't necessarily, you know, we, we in sort of the modern Western world, you know, we see a bottle, we see a stone on the side of the road, we see brick, things like that, but we don't really necessarily think about what makes them up, you know, and what, what is a part of it and what else could be made from it. I mean, glass in essence is sand and, you know, other particles that come along with it. But to then think and actually put it into primarily a weapon, but also quite a symbolic uh, object, I would have to say. I mean, if I was to look at a Kimberley point and to think, you know, yes, it does look quite vicious. Um, it's got it's got quite vicious ends, I have to say. But it is, I wouldn't necessarily go, oh yes, I'll go hunting with that. I'd go, maybe I'll, you know, put it on my wall or in a in a cabinet. It looks more it looks more presentational as a, as a personal interpretation. I know you said this is, a, this is a big debate on you know whether they're yeah, yeah. functional things like that. But I think personally, I would view them as more symbolic. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out hunting anyway. But if I was so inclined, um, they were also used for um, scarification, <clears throat> so for for cutting the human body. Okay. So they did, they did have that in, within Aboriginal culture. They weren't just another. A, a, an alternative material for spear points. They did have a symbolic role as well. Um, I've got, a, there's a photograph um, of a scarified Aboriginal that were, and it was done with a bottle knife. That's the, the caption. Oh, that's, I mean, yeah, that sounds quite... <laughs> that's more interesting, doesn't it? Mm, it's, it's, it's a little bit scary, the thought of having sort of carved in um, sort of uh, signias and things like that, but I, I, yeah, no, actually, you say it. you can kind of, you know, what, why, why wouldn't you, you know, if that's something you're inclined to do, why not use, you know, tools that you've made? It makes sense. It's another purpose that we don't necessarily think about um, immediately. I guess um, a, a final question I have for you then is: is um, anything coming of your research of Kimberley points? Is there um, anything publication-wise, or maybe future research you're doing? Um, I, I think we we had the conversation earlier that you know this discussion's sort of open-ended because. Mm. Um, well, what I mean, depending on how we're doing for time, I'd just like to talk a little bit about how I uh, went through the process of learning but also the social implications for me um, because I, I've explained the logic behind how I access the materials but when I started looking for information there's a thing called academia.edu I don't know if you've used it oh yes oh yes, oh, yes. <laughs> and um, it becomes apparent quite quickly that Kim Ackerman is the person who's got the most depth of knowledge and on academia when you download a paper it gives you the option to tell the author why you're downloading it hmm. so I, I literally just put I'm I'm interested in Kimberley points I want to learn how to nap and he got back to me really quickly 
And um, he got back to me and then he subsequently recommended a couple of out of print books that I, I ordered. He sent me, he told me which papers I needed to read, but he also sent me two of his PowerPoints. Really, really helpful. And I then went to the museum. So I had his really detailed knowledge plus the objects in the museum. And one of the things he told me was that Aboriginals make them from this number eight wire, um, hardwoods. So a bit like we would use um, a red deer antler, they use hardwoods. But also kangaroo ulna, you know, the forearms of kangaroos, sharpen the serrated edges. So because I'd been gathering my, I, I, I became relatively competent at producing them. And because I'd been gathering the materials, um, I became interested in bottles. And I was at the time, which was 2017, I think it was, one of my colleagues within the department, Eleanor Casella, was a historic archeologist. So I asked her, could she give me a sort of idiot's guide to bottles? <laughs> which she did. And then um, she said, oh, could you make me a couple of points for my teaching collection, which I did. She then had a friend come over from Australia, an archaeology friend who saw the points I'd made. And he said, oh, I've got loads of glass and I've got a budget to dispose of it. Does he want it? So being cheeky, I, I said, I've not met the guy. It's all over at the internet. I said, well, I've, I've got a supply of glass, but what would be really useful is some hardwoods, some fencing wire and some kangaroo ulna. And it was almost a joke, you know, I was, I was just mm. uh, pushing my luck. So he said, well, I can't get you those things. But funnily enough, I've got a friend who did his PhD on fencing wire and he's going out to do some field work in two weeks. So long story short, I forgot about it. And then I think it was in October, same year, Eleanor sent me an email and said, oh, I've got a package for you. Oh. And it was this pack of two kangaroo ulna, two Australian hardwoods, and a load of fencing wire that had got grid references and told me the date it was produced and what it was made from and the exact thickness. It was, it was amazing. Excellent. And, I was really moved because I'd never met these people in person and yet they'd gone to all this trouble. So Dennis, um, Eleanor's friend, had organised it all and Eleanor had gone to Australia and she brought it back with her and this other person, John, he went out and he he obviously knew where the fencing wire was. He got the hardwoods. Then he found a kangaroo that had been shot and he rendered the arms so he could get the forearms for me. So it was just amazing that these people had gone to so much trouble to facilitate, you know, a, a project that I was doing. And I, I was really moved by it. And it was at a time when the archaeology department, as you know it, it was a lot bigger then. Uh, we lost, and I think it was in 2016, 17, we lost five academics due to budget cuts. So, and Eleanor was one of the academics that went. So on the one hand, she'd got all this amazing stuff from literally the other side of the world. For, you know, no money changed hands. And yet she was losing her job. She, the reason she went to Australia was for an interview for a different job. Oh, 
Okay. So, on the one hand, yeah, it's I, I, I used it to learn about how to pressure flake, but it actually connected me with people that opened my eyes to the social role of knowledge production and also how we're sort of shifting into what you know we, we're becoming more of a knowledge economy mm. and you know the key thing here was no there was no money involved in any of these processes so it's made me really rethink about how we interact with each other you know and help facilitate each other in our projects but also the trajectory of education in the UK where it's going and how it's almost like the opposite to that unfortunately yeah no I, I would have to agree I think the I know I I don't know if I would have well first of all I don't know if I'd have the, the guts to just email someone and say you know could could you please have a you know keep your eye out for you know, just a kangaroo owner if you can. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just the development of you emailing me and saying, "Can you do a, can you do a, a podcast about Kimberley Points?" It's, yeah. it's just one step further along the, because uh, people can say no, can't they? The business, yeah. you know, it's not um, the end of the world. No, I mean, yeah, actually, no, that is that's a very um, basic level comparison. I say, you know, me reaching out to to lecturers saying, "Oh, would you be interested in talking?" I mean. Some I've never had emails back from, and you know, people such as yourself. This is your third time, I think, on here. So it's it's really interesting to see how um, different people are so ready to to share and like help. And it is, you know, it's this idea of you know, money is knowledge. You know, knowledge is almost a currency in yeah, this kind of yeah. form. So you know, I would say neither myself or yourselves are doing this to commodify it and gain some economic value out of it. It's not about that. Mm. But it's almost like we are in a system that does operate like that. So that the reason this is open-ended is it's, it's a really interesting thinking about the different ways we interact with each other and whether economy is the right way of thinking about something like education and research and collaboration yeah does it help or does it hinder it i don't know well i do know <laughs> it's, it's a complex discussion and um i think it is a discussion to be had i don't know an answer i've got an opinion hmm. no i think it's, it's it's a very i think maybe saying rather than sort of economy it's it's a network of knowledge i think education should be this or it should be a network of knowledge in that it you know establishes connections with like you know like you've now got connections in Australia you know and if it is so happens to come that you know, maybe you need a, another kangaroo <laughs> owner if necessary you know you, you've got a person that you can you can just email and it's it's a really special thing I think to be able to say that you know to say oh you know let me just send so and so an email and they can you know, give me an opinion on something it really is quite a, a, a powerful connection to have I think that's really lovely. Yeah, I didn't um, ultimately. I didn't use those materials to make tools. I, I was so, I was so taken aback by what had happened. Um, and also, there's an academic called Costas um, Arvanitis in Mansfield Cooper Building who does museum studies. And in that building, there's a display case as you go in, 
So I asked him, could I use it? And he let me use it for six months. So I did a little exhibition, more or less telling this story. And it started out as an exhibition about Kimberley Points, but really it was, I thought it was really interesting having a picture of Eleanor at the entrance to Mansfield Cooper building for six months, because obviously she was no longer there, but she facilitated all this for me. So it was sort of like, not a tribute to her, but it was recognising the importance of her role in me being able to do all this stuff and the other and you know the other people as well because it, it's not all about me that's the, the whole point it's not about me and Kimberly points I was part of a network that facilitated all this happening and I, I thought that was really it's not Aboriginal social structure but those same artifacts seem to have engendered this positive feeling so that people who had never met and probably won't meet were willing to go to all that trouble on my behalf. Obviously, I send them a Kimberley point each. <laughs> the least they could do, but that's not why they did it. You know what I mean? Mm. Oh, that's 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 really moving. Actually, that's really that's, <laughs> oh, that's really made my day to hear that story. That's really wonderful to think that people are so willing to share. And I mean, you know, it's wow. That I'm. That's really, really lovely. I'm really, thank you for telling <laughs> us that. I like, that's really, I, just, I can't stop smiling now. Um, <laughs> well, hope, I mean, we can only hope that um, perhaps more connections like this can form and that, you know, we can hopefully go on from here. I guess, I guess that kind of is the next step is, is seeing how many more connections we can make almost to see how yeah, much I mean, we can share. Well, you know, through doing this podcast, you're obviously making a lot of connections. And you find, you know, it's a really good way to, you know, I found out stuff about rock crystal <laughs> that I didn't know. And, and, I, and I knew about it. And I knew, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it's a way of getting um, research before it gets to that publication stage. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, it's nice to hear, um, you know, people that are, it's nice to hear academics sort of get very passionate about things that they don't necessarily get to to talk about otherwise I think it's quite a you know to hear stories like this you know you wouldn't necessarily you know hear in a lecture for example or, you know just online it's nice to hear sort of the almost the the background you know perspective that comes from it and I think there's it's really really lovely to to know that these kind of connections can exist it gives us gives us hope for the future even though we are in a slightly unusual time shall we say yeah, I suppose, and I know we're running out of time, but I'd say that if you choose to research something you're interested in, the chances are other people will be interested in it as well. And therefore you are connected, even though you've never met each other before, because you've got something that you've both got in common. Yeah. And, um, I don't know whether, you know, I've thought about it a lot. I don't know whether it's because certainly myself and Dennis had Eleanor in common, um, or whether it was the fact that we were dealing with a subject, Kimberley Points, that everybody was interested in. So I don't know whether it's the object or the social links of the people involved, but not, you know, none of us knew everybody. Mm. It was it was a chain of... So I think that, you know, the objects themselves played a significant role in that, connecting us together. Oh, well, that's... Like you said, unfortunately, we are running out of time a little bit. But I think that's a really, a really lovely idea to sort of 
have hope for the future that we can have these more connections and yeah i will be now googling pictures of kimberly points probably for hours uh, <laughs> just because they're so beautiful and trying to figure out how on earth i can make one um <laughs> have to put the um we have to try and find um examples perhaps you know, when in hopefully in the future when the museum opens again if they've got exhibits then perhaps we can we can go and see them well we can we can live in hope yeah right. i shall say thank you very much dan um thank you for telling us the story it really has been a wonderful thank thing to listen <laughs> no it's to. my pleasure it's my pleasure and i shall end this here by saying uh, thank you and goodbye <laughs>